All right. Well, it's good to be together, and uh, it's good to hear that we've got another at least six months here in this place, yeah, a little bit of stability. I reckon we can make the most of that. What do you reckon? Yeah. Yeah. A couple of head nods, a couple of yes. Um, if, if, we do, if we do stay here for another six months, that'll be 12 months all up, and we'll be the longest we've ever been in any one location, ever. <laughs> I'm not sure how we'll feel. This might feel like home or something. It'll be a scary feeling, won't it? We'll... Yeah, that's right. Um, and it's good to be in a gospel, which is what we're diving into this week, into the gospel of Mark. Um, if you're new here with us, we work our way through books of the Bible and we actually chipped our way through the Gospel of John over the first three years of this church in, the, in this final term and now we launch into another Gospel. We'll work our way through all the Gospels and if it takes us three years to get through each one, that'll mean we'll take <laughs> 12 years. Come on, you with me? Anyway, we're starting in the Gospel of Mark. Tonight. If you're new to these things, a Gospel is just a biography. And we've got four biographies of the life of Jesus in the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. Mark is the shortest one and that's the one we're diving into. We'll actually get halfway through the Gospel of Mark over the next 10 weeks. If you're really quite new to this, the first half of the Bible is called the Old Testament, which is everything that happens before Jesus. The New Testament letters and the book of Acts is everything that happens after Jesus The Gospels are where we get the chance to walk with Jesus during his ministry years. The the three or so years of his public life before he heads to the cross and then is raised from the dead. That's what we get here in the Gospels, which means we get a chance to just draw really near to the source. yeah, Right up close to the man who stands right at the centre of what we believe as Christians. We get to focus in on him. This is going to be good for us. This is going to be good for anyone who's new to these things. And so really, when you work through a book of the, like the gospel, it is a good opportunity to invite someone. So if you've got someone in mind who's got a level of interest and they're, they're keen to get back to church or they're keen to get their teeth into Jesus and understand him a bit more, that's a funny phrase, isn't it? But um, it, this could be a great time to invite them along and we've got room so you can go ahead and do that. Um, the Gospel of, the Mark, of Mark is the shortest one. It's got 16 chapters and each of the chapters are a little bit shorter than what you get elsewhere, which means it's pretty compact. It's straightforward. It just comes at us nice and quick and fast and doesn't fluff around. It's almost like the Audi version of the Bible. It's not like Woolies or Coles where you've got multiple options and multiple aisles. You just, you got one product. Here's the deal. How's that? That's how that event went. And then he just moves on to the next one. All right. So you just get to go along and pick and, and just get to, no fuss. Yep. Um, it's actually designed, most people think, therefore, because it's short, to, just be, to be read in one sitting. So have you ever done that? Have you ever sat down and actually just read through the whole of a gospel? Um, Because this could be a good opportunity for you. Read through the gospel of Mark. Um, And if you're not much of a good reader, get someone to read to you the gospel of Mark. How about that? Someone maybe that might be a special someone who you like the sound of their voice and they can just read to you. And if you can't find a special someone you want to be read to, just get the Bible app and you can pick the voice that reads to you. Um, But it's easy to get through the Gospel of Mark in one sitting. You can do it, all right? Um, And as I did it this week, what I was reminded about, there's lots of things, I'm looking forward to pushing through this Gospel, but one thing I was reminded about particularly um, was that everywhere Jesus went and everything he said and everything he did provoked a reaction. 
Always, always some kind of reaction. Sometimes people were startled and kind of rattled by what he said and did. Sometimes they were just confused. Other times they were left cheering and rejoicing and celebrating. And sometimes they were just furious, yeah, and feeling threatened by what just Jesus just said or did. Um, but they were never unmoved, that's for sure. Yep. If there's one thing you could never accuse Jesus of being, it's boring. Yep. Or ignorable. In fact, these days, the only way you can really ignore Jesus is just never read the Bible. That, that's how you can go through life, ignoring Jesus probably. But if you pick up your Bible, and if you particularly you read the Gospels, he is unignorable. He's striking. He's going to put you in a position where you're going to find yourself thinking, who is this man? It's, it's, it's the big question you'll ask when you read a gospel. Who is Jesus? What do I really, who do I really think Jesus is? And, and, and I want to say that is the most important question you can ask in the days of your life. Who is Jesus? Who do I believe he is? And, you know, the answer to that question will actually um, dictate your life here on earth. And it will determine, the way you answer that question will determine all of your eternity as well. <laughs> so who is Jesus? Who do you think he is? And the Gospel of Mark, like all of the Gospels, is just going to take us right into the guts of that question. So we ask it seriously and think deeply about Jesus. So come to Mark chapter 1 with me and we'll get this journey moving on the road Chapter 1, verse 1, it says, The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. And when it says the beginning, it almost sounds like Genesis, doesn't it? Like in the beginning. And it's meant to. It's meant to get you thinking, oh, this is the beginning of something new. This is the start of, of a new age, a new era with the coming of this guy. In the beginning of the gospel, what does it say? In the beginning of the good news, which means gospel. Yep. Um, this is like the beginning of the proclamation of the good news about Jesus. And how is Jesus described there in verse 1? Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Maybe you've got an older version that says Jesus Christ. And if you're new to these things, Christ isn't just Jesus' last name, his surname. Christ is Jesus' title. He's the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the Son of God, which basically just means He's the king. He, in fact, he's the long-awaited king that Israel have been waiting for to come and renew or establish the kingdom in its fullness and draw people into it and rule and reign as the king. It's actually what the phrase son of God means. You hear the phrase son of God and you might think oh, it's talking about God the son. It's connected to that. But the phrase son of God is used in the ancient world to speak about the king. And so Jesus here is the king, not the king of the Jews, but the king of all the earth who's come to establish his kingdom. Yep. So here comes the king. Um, interestingly enough, as it dives into the story of the king, Jesus, it actually begins not with Jesus. Have you noticed that in the Gospels? It's cool, right? Let's talk about Jesus. Oh, hang on. Before we do, let's talk about this other bloke. Every time. It, it doesn't actually start with Jesus himself. It starts with Jesus's weird, freaky cousin, 
John the Baptist. Have you noticed that? And have you had a good look at John the Baptist? And have you asked why the Jesus story always starts with this John the Baptist fellow, which is not John the disciple, it's John the Baptist, the guy who came baptising? Why does it start with him? I'll give you a quick answer. It's because there was a stack of prophecy in regards to when the Messiah comes, and a number of those prophecies were about the guy who would come before the Messiah. Yep, It's almost like the forerunner. And, and there's a lot of detail about who he would be. It's almost like this. If Jesus is the leading act, yep, then the, the warm-up act or the, what do you call it, the, the supporting act is John the Baptist. And when you see the supporting act come on and you know they're good, you know for sure what's going to follow is the real deal, you know, the, the headlining act that you've come here for. And that's the deal with John the Baptist. When, when, when Israel sees him appear, they're like, oh, the Messiah's coming. The, the, the real one is on his way because the warm-up act has come. And look at verses 2 and 3. Here's a bit of the prophecy about John the Baptist. Have a look at it there. Um, it says, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, now just on that, um, what's combined here I think is a prophecy from Malachi and Isaiah. It's not simply Isaiah. The first is Malachi is given. I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. So there's some prophecy about the messenger who comes before the Messiah. And actually, when you go to Malachi chapter 3 and chapter 4, the messenger, the messenger comes to announce the arrival of the, the king or the Messiah. And the big tone and the note of the arrival of the Messiah is going to be an announcement of judgment that's going to come when the Messiah arrives. But the second part of the prophecy, again about John the Baptist, verse 3, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight the paths for him. That's likely Isaiah 40. Um, and if you read Isaiah 40, that's all about the announcing of the one who was to come, you know, the suffering servant who would bring a time of salvation. So this prophecy about the one who would come before, it's got two elements to it. He's announcing the, the, the coming of the Messiah. But just so you know, when the Messiah comes, he's going to bring both judgment and salvation. Yeah? He's going to bring dread and comfort, this Messiah Jesus. He's not simple. There's a complexity to him. But one thing's for sure, when you see the warm-up act, when you see this John the Baptist messenger figure appear, you can know for sure that the one who's going to follow him, the one who's just about to appear, is the real deal. Have a look at what John the Baptist does, though. Let's think about him for a little bit. He's a pretty interesting character. He preaches. Look at verse 4. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. So he's preaching, and his message is um, a baptism of repentance. In other words, repent of your sin, turn back to God, people of God, and come and be baptised as a sign that you've done that. Yep, turn away from your sins, come back to God and be baptised and receive forgiveness for your sins. There was a baptism that was attached to his teaching so you could see who has received the teaching, you know, and acknowledged it. Now, how many people received his teaching? How many people came out and were baptised by John the Baptist? Check out verse 5. 
the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. How's that? You ever notice that? That would have been quite a scene. There would have been quite a buzz in the air because the whole Judean countryside, it's just referring to the vast majority of everyone in the region and everyone in Jerusalem. They're streaming out. They're hearing about this figure who's in the wilderness and there's something going on in their hearts and they're knowing they need to turn back to God and they go and listen and they find themselves confessing their sin to each other and turning back to God. It's an amazing moment and they're streaming out of the city and they're streaming out of the country and they're going out to John. Can you picture, I reckon, thousands of people at the River Jordan getting baptised? I mean, maybe you've heard about revivals in the past or renewal movements and you've seen lots of people getting baptized if you know the Jesus movement story of the 60s and 70s yeah 70s there's lots of pictures of hundreds and thousands of people coming out to be baptized it's quite incredible and there's been moments of revival this is a cracking one thousands of people coming out and in their hearts confessing their sins and wanting to genuinely turn back to God and be baptized what a beautiful moment to see that many people baptized we've seen a bunch of people baptized here in this church over the last couple of years just like a couple or a handful each time we do baptisms but i think we've done baptisms 5 or 6 times 7 times i think this might be the 8th time um, and, and it might be that you're yet to be baptised. And, and just so you know, you don't have to be baptised to be saved. But if you have turned to God and you have repented of your sins, then baptism can be a beautiful symbol to receive and one that the whole family of God can celebrate. So if you're interested in being baptised, keep that in mind for this November 12th date and come and have a yak with us if, you, if you're thinking, yeah, I haven't done that and I think I should do that. That could be helpful for me. Come and chat about it. But what a beautiful moment to see this many people coming out to turn from their sins and be baptized you know i think it's kind of surprising that this many people want to listen to john and be baptized by john because he was a pretty weird character just to put it bluntly i mean check out the description of him in verse six i mean do you see many people getting around looking like this john wore clothing made of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. Just, I don't know what you picture with that. Like, so some wild man, yeah? He's wearing clothes that he's made from an animal that he's slaughtered, probably. He's got long hair, probably, and a big fat beard. And check out what he eats. He ate locusts and wild honey. Have you ever eaten a locust? <laughs> I don't even know how you catch a locust or whether you cook it or whether he's just snatching them out of the air and just sticking them in his mouth like a crazy feral dude and grabbing wild honey and getting just sticking it all over his face with bees. I don't know. There's the picture. He's just surviving in what he can find in the wild. What a crazy man. What a wild man from Borneo. Can you picture him? Can you see him? And he's literally living out there in the wilderness, in the desert. But the crowds weren't put off. They didn't seem to be freaked out. In fact, they seemed to get it. And they seemed to be drawn to this man and his teaching. And that's because what we look at and might initially react at as weird and feral and wild, the ancient people of Israel likely saw a classic desert prophet. Yep. Just like Elijah or someone like that. 
Now, I was chatting to Phil before. He's been reading 1 Kings recently. Um, you read through 1 Kings and you'll come across this cl- classic prophet figure, Elijah. And when you get to 1 Kings chapter 8, check out what he wears. A garment of hair, a leather belt, and he's got this desert nomad diet. Yeah? It, apparently, it's the ancient prophet uniform that you wear. This is how you get around. This is what you eat. It's what you do. And it's no mistake that this is how John was dressing and how he was living. Yeah? And, and this, this prophet Elijah from back in the time of Kings, um, he had a message really similar as well. His message was, turn back to God, Israel. Repent of your sins and get ready for God. He's coming. It's the message of Elijah. And, and, and you know what? Israel hadn't seen a figure like this for a long time they hadn't heard a message like this in fact it had been about 400 years of relative silence in insofar as like direct explicit words from God through prophets silence for 400 years until John the Baptist appears here he is he's the one we've been waiting for they recognize him They hear his message. History's been building towards this moment and now appears this fellow, John the Baptist, in the wilderness, deliberately modelling himself on Elijah kind of prophets. It's like John the Baptist is the final Old Testament prophet before the coming of the New Age, before the coming of the Messiah. And he's the one to prepare the way for Jesus. Now, he would have been pretty popular, John the Baptist, but he's pretty clear that it's not about him. Yep, He's just preparing the way for the real one. Yep. As big as the revival was, as, as popular of a leader he would have been, he, he, when he speaks, and we'll get to it in a sec, he, he's saying something along the lines, if you haven't seen anything yet, you think this is good? Oh, this is not it, I'm not it, I'm just the warm-up act. Wait till you see Jesus. Wait till you meet the Messiah. Wait till you hear him preach. Wait till you see what he does. Wait till you actually get to draw near to him. Wait till you get to follow him. That's the real deal. And, and he's, he's so clear at pointing people to Jesus. Look at verse 7. And this was his message. After me comes one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. So there's the first part of his message in regards to Jesus. Jesus, the Messiah, is going to be the one who has the real power and authority. Yep, So much more than me, John is saying. So high above me that I'm not even worthy to stoop down and untie the thongs of his sandals, which is is, an image of what the lowest servant or slave in a household would do. And John says, he is so high above me with power and authority and rule, I'm not even worthy to be a servant of his. John's really clear. This guy, Jesus, he's the real king. And I do want to say to you, have you met Jesus? Have you met the real king? Have you met the one with real authority and power? Have you, have you caught a glimpse of his majesty? And have you bowed before him in humility and received him as your king? Because John the Baptist was preparing us for this one, Jesus. And, the John, and John says, and he's going to come with a baptism too, but it's different from mine. Look at verse 8. Um, John says, I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. 
So, so the baptism he does, better than mine. I know you're all coming out here and you're loving being in the Jordan River and I tell you what, this is fun, isn't it? There's thousands of us and we're repenting of sin and, it, and it's great. Although John did have some pretty fierce words to say to the Pharisees who came out as well. You can read in the other Gospels about that. He launches into them. He thinks they're coming out for the wrong reason. But anyway, he would, by and large, it would have been an incredible moment. But he wants to, everyone to know that there's more than this and there's a better baptism. And Jesus is going to bring this baptism, which is not with water, it's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I'm, I'm calling you to turn from your sin. Jesus is actually going to bring something that's going to change you from the inside out. Yeah? Jesus is going to bring something and anoint you and live in you and enable you to live a whole new life. It's so far and above and beyond what I'm bringing in this moment. Yeah. Now just note this for a moment. Um, Jesus actually never baptised anyone with water. So when John says Jesus is going to baptise you, what's he referring to? Well, probably not a little particular moment here and there, but the whole scope of Jesus' ministry. That with the coming of Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection, the whole result of the coming of the Messiah was going to be this baptism of the Spirit on God's people. There'd be an, an anointing that comes upon God's people because with the coming of Jesus comes this new age of the Spirit where all who belong to Christ, all who decide to follow Jesus, have the Spirit of Christ. That's where we get in the letters in the New Testament. No longer is it only going to be the prophets and the priests and the kings who are anointed with the Holy Spirit for a particular task among God's people. It's now going to be the case in the new age of the Spirit with the coming of the Messiah that all believers, all followers get baptised in the Spirit. All followers receive the Spirit in full, God in you, converting you, enabling you, empowering you for a whole new life of obedience and submission to the King so that you would honour him with your life. That's our deal. That's what we get. How good's that? This is what you get. A baptism of the Spirit. Have you got that? Do you have God living in you by his Holy Spirit? It, it, the first thing God will do if he comes to live in you is he will enable you to believe in his Son. <laughs> he, he, he enables you to have faith and trust. If you've put your trust in Jesus... You can only actually do that and call Jesus Lord by the Spirit of God. But he intends to do more in you than simply give you belief and trust. God intends a whole new life for you. He, he intends um, change for you, yeah? M making you more and more like Jesus. He intends to do that with you and in you during your days. Have you got that? Are you aware of that? Now Jesus comes. So we've got John the Baptist. Now enter Jesus. What would you expect Jesus to do when he turns up on the scene after John the Baptist had been preaching and baptising for a good amount of time and thousands of people come out? Wouldn't you be tempted if you were Jesus to just kind of run down the beach and go, hey, I'm here. I'm the one that John the Baptist... That's what I would do, okay? <laughs> I'm so glad Jesus is nothing like me. Jesus doesn't do this. He just quietly comes in on the scene, and the first thing he does is actually quite puzzling almost. It's at least quite interesting. He actually comes down 
And he goes out to John the Baptist to be baptised himself. And that's interesting, isn't it? That Jesus would take John the Baptist's baptism because John the Baptist's baptism was a sign of repentance of sin and forgiveness. But Jesus did not need to repent of sin. We're talking here about the perfect Son of God, the one who lives perfectly the life that you and I could never live and does it on our behalf. He has no sin to repent on, of. Yep. He has no need for forgiveness of his sin. So what's he doing in coming out and being baptised? Actually, I haven't even read it yet, have we? Look at verse 9. Read it with me. So you know I'm not lying. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptised by John in the Jordan. The fact that it mentions he's from Nazareth is just to identify that that's the bloke we're talking about. That bloke Jesus who no one knew much about, that nobody kind of guy from a nobody kind of nowhere kind of place. No one special came out of Nazareth. It wasn't particularly wicked. It was just a nothing kind of place where you're not expecting much good to come out of it. That's where Jesus grew up, you know, pretty low-key, humble family, just trained to be a chippy because his dad was a chippy. That's just what you do. And when he's around the age of 30, he actually launches into his public ministry. And this is the start of it, humble, from from Galilee, Nazareth, and he comes out and receives a baptism. Yeah? Now, When John the Baptist first sees him coming out to be baptised, he's probably thinking like you and I, I'm not sure that I should be baptised in you, Jesus. If you go to one of the other gospel accounts in Matthew, can I I get you to throw up Matthew chapter 3? Look, then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptised by John, but John tried to deter him, as you would, right? John responds like you and I would. It's like, "Hang hang on, Jesus. He tries to deter him, saying, I need to be baptised by you, mate and do you come to me I added mate in there did you see that all right do you see what he's doing he said how about you baptize me Jesus I don't know about me baptizing you he's hesitant and I think he's rightly hesitant because he knows what his baptism is a sign of but Jesus is going to kind of reinvent what's going on here and Jesus is going to be baptized but for a different purpose because look at what Jesus says he replies let it be so now which is Jesus saying, John, do not get in the way of this. This is going to happen. Don't try and get in the way. Let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. It is proper for us to... This this is proper to happen. This is what God wants to happen because what's going to happen in this moment as you baptise me is going to fulfill all righteousness, which is interesting language, but it simply means this is going to fulfill God's righteous plan. This is actually going to bring about what God intends. Don't get in the way of this, John. You watch what's going to happen. Let's go through with this. Let's be obedient and submit to this moment that God ordained in the future and that says, then John consented. Yeah, you wouldn't argue with Jesus, would you? After he's spoken those words, all right, well, let's do this then. And he baptizes Jesus and it's an incredible moment. But let me just pause for a little bit and, and just and note something, if you've never noticed this before. We use baptism in a very particular way these days. You know, we use it to, as a symbol of someone who, an adult who's recently converted to Christ, 
to give a public declaration of the fact that now they've, they belong to Jesus, they've died to their sin, they've been raised to new life, and we as a church get to celebrate that, that they're a member of God's family now. That's the way we use baptism, and it's a good way to use baptism, but just so you know, baptism has been used differently as a symbol throughout history. Yep. In fact, John's using it here as a symbol of just a general turning back to God, God's own people turning back to him. Yep. And did you know that in the ancient world, a rabbi, who was just a teacher of that time, would baptise their own followers? So a rabbi in the ancient world would, would want to have students that are part of his class, but they belong to him in such a way that he ends up baptising them as followers of him. And so that kind of a baptism is more like an identification thing. You know, those students would come and say, yeah, this is my rabbi. I, I receive his baptism as a sign that I identify with him. I'm, I belong to him. I submit to his teaching and I'm going to be a student of his. That's a, that's a different kind of baptism, isn't it? It's like identification or affiliation yep. or alignment. And when you start to notice details like that in regards to baptism, that might be a little doorway into understanding why Jesus was willing to be baptised by John the Baptist. I think Jesus is wanting to align himself with this guy, John the Baptist. I think he's wanting to publicly say, yep, I'm, I'm, I'm with John with everything he's saying here. I subscribe to his teaching. He's teaching about being the one who's preparing the way for the coming of the Messiah. He's spot on. The Messiah's coming. And just so you know... It's me. <laughs> and you just watch. I think that's what's going on with Jesus' baptism. Alignment with the teaching of John the Baptist. And, and, and with that, I think submission and obedience to God's plan that he's just spoken about. You know, this, this, this is to fulfill the promises of God. So that, that's likely what's happening with Jesus' baptism here. Does that make sense? If it doesn't, we'll talk more about it later. And now in this moment, when Jesus gets baptised, it becomes this big identification moment for Jesus. And I think likely a public identification moment. Just in case anyone out there is left with any doubt about who this one, Jesus, is, watch this, hear this. Check it out. Look at verse 10 and verse 11. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water... He saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove and a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. Cop that for a moment. That's a huge moment. That's an identification moment. John the Baptist at least saw it and heard it. It's likely, I think, everyone saw it and heard it. Here's Jesus. He comes up out of the water. Can you picture it? Heaven opens. So I don't know, I don't know what that looks like, but the sky cracks open and, and it says heaven is torn open, meaning, you know, he's Jesus and those who are there see directly into what? The throne room of God, where God Himself is. It's it's kind of language like the book of the Revelation. It's it's apocalyptic type. Language. It's like, a, it's like a vision into the heaven, the throne room of God. And if, I tell you what, if heaven's cracked open and we're looking in and God's there, what's just about to happen? Well, we're going to get a direct revelation from God. You know, there's going to be a word from him. He's going to speak and he's going to reveal something really important. Yep. 
That's what it indicates. And of course, as heaven opens, what descends on Jesus is the Holy Spirit in a bodily form. It's described here as the shape of a dove, which is not what John would have been expecting. He might have been expecting wind and fire and something like this. You don't, you don't get the dove very often in scriptures. It almost harks back to Genesis chapter 1 with the creation account where the Spirit hovers over the waters. That's the thing I think is closest to it. But here's the Spirit hovering down upon Jesus, descending on him, anointing him, not because Jesus had never met the Holy Spirit, Spirit before. Jesus had just spent all eternity in loving union with the Holy Spirit because that's who he is, Father, Son and Spirit. But the Spirit descends on him to anoint him for his public ministry, to prepare him for all that he's about to do leading to the cross. And as the Spirit comes upon him, also the voice of God the Father booms into this moment. And check out what is said about Jesus. You are my son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. I mean, just, just hear those words spoken to Jesus. Yeah? It's likely a bit of a combination of Isaiah 42, suffering servant, along with Psalm 2, the son of God, the king, the prince. You are my son, whom I love in whom I am well pleased. If you're not entirely sure who you think Jesus is, here's the big revelation moment. It doesn't get much clearer than this. The man Jesus who literally walked this earth 2,000 years ago, the God of heaven declares publicly that this one is the Son of God. Yeah? John hears it. They all hear it. They all see it. It's so clear. You are my son. And I think that literally talks, you know, there's a connection there with Jesus being understood to be, you know, the Son, God, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He, he's this one. He's one who's existed with God the Father for all eternity. But the phrase, as I said before, you are my Son or Son of God, actually points to, more directly towards the concept of kingship. This, this is the Christ, the Messiah, the King. The one who's going to rule and reign. The one who's going to establish his kingdom and bring people into it. Make a way for people back to God in his kingdom. It's a big affirmation for Jesus. He's the king. He's the son. But the great thing is it's not simply an affirmation of a function that Jesus needs to live in. It's not, here's what you need to do, mate. Sit on your throne, be the king, rule and reign. And look at the next line. Isn't my son whom I love? There's, there's affection in this declaration. It's not just, here's what you've got to do. It's, this is the one I love. This is my beloved son. You, you will not find a God like this anywhere else. A God who's all-powerful. A God who sends his son like this and then publicly declares his love for his son. This is the one I love. This is the one who's dwelt with me in loving union for all eternity. Yeah? And God's just saying publicly, yeah, this is, this is the one I know well. Yeah? And, and this is part of the complex reality of who our God is. He's Father, Son, and Spirit. And he's, your, your God is a community in and of himself. He is a family in a sense. 
and the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have dwelt together in perfect, loving community for all eternity. And here's God the Father saying, yeah, this is my son. This is the one I love. This is the one I sent. And, and, and this is the one I'm well pleased with. I'm pleased with him. Likely, likely an indication that God is pleased and delighting in what Jesus is doing. The fact that he's going through with the plan. The fact that he's come. He left the throne of being the son of God in heaven and descended to earth, took on a human body and has just spent 30 years experiencing what it's like to be a human. A perfect one, but he's grown up in a family. You know, he's learned the art of how to live and he's done it perfectly and now here he is stepping forward for the final few years of his life, stepping forward to the very crux of the plan and the purpose. He's stepping up to the plate and he's doing it obediently. He's submitting to the will and the plan of the Father and the Father's like, I'm pleased with you. I'm delighting in what you're doing. You're sticking to the plan that we have for the world, for the universe. It's beautiful and I love you. Can you see this, Jesus? Do do you know him? Do you trust that he is the son of God, that he's the king who really came and walked this earth and did it perfectly and then went to the cross to bear your sin? Do you know that he's the king who did that for you? Do you believe this and do you trust in this Jesus? Because this is at the heart of what it means to be a Christian. You trust in what's declared here about Jesus. Now, here's the kicker. If you are someone who's come to put your trust and belief in Jesus in these things, then these words that are spoken to Jesus now actually, in a very real way, are spoken over you. Have you ever considered that before? It's one thing to think, yep, that's right, for these words to be spoken over Jesus, but have you ever considered that these words are actually now can be for you? Because here's the incredible reality. A Christian is someone who's connected to Christ. And, And that union with Christ is so comprehensive by the Spirit of God that a Christian is described in the New Testament as being in Christ, And if you're someone who's come to put your trust in Jesus and you are now in Christ, then all that is for him is now also for you. This is the majesty of becoming a Christian, that here we are in our our failure and in our wrestle with the presence of sin that remains in our life. Though we're released from being slaves to sin, we still struggle with the presence and we've got dysfunction in our lives and we're banged up and we're broken. And yet, and yet, if you're someone who's come to put your trust in Jesus and you've been joined to him by the Spirit and you're now in Christ, these things God says to you. God the Father says these things to you. He says, you are my son. Now you, want, you might say, I want him to say, you are my daughter. You are my daughter. All right? The reason why son is used is because in the ancient world, son carries with it the concept of inheritance, meaning you get everything. So you are my son, you are my daughter, but hear this, you get everything. Yep. You, you get all that Jesus has. You get all of me. 
And that is everything. Yep. You are my child. You actually genuinely belong to God the Father. You get my name. You get my security. You get relationship with me. You get to belong to this eternal, loving community that's existed forever. You now are now part of that. That's what you get because you're my child. You're never going to hear anything like this anywhere else. For all that you might experience as a Christian and the struggles you might have and the doubts you might have and some of the questions you might have, if you've put your trust in Jesus and you've received the Spirit and you've been joined to Him, you now belong to the loving community. And God calls you His own. He says, you're in and you'll always be in. You're my son, you're my child, and, and you're the one I love. Yeah? You are the one I love. Jeez, we love to hear those words. We love to be loved, don't we? We search for love all our lives, and we, and we get little glimpses of it in the best of our relationships, but it never fulfills us. Another human, the longer, but here's God, the ultimate one, who says, I love you. You're the one I love. And you can't get away from my love. You're now in this. I got you. And, and, and you are the one in whom I am well pleased. You know, if, you're, if, if you're in Christ, God is pleased with you. God delights in you because you joined to Jesus. And God delights in Jesus. And because you're united to him, he now delights in you. How good is that? You know, we go our whole lives longing for affirmation. And we hunt for it from, I don't know, every little corner of our life. You want it from your boss, you know. You just want him or her to say, you're doing a great job. You know, in fact, I'm going to promote you. I don't know, what do you want to hear from your boss? You want to hear it from your colleagues. You want them to tell you that you're doing a great job. You know, you want to hear it from your friends that you live with, that you're a great person. We all want to hear it from our dads for some reason. We just need to hear our dads tell us things like this. We want to be affirmed. It's just kind of in us. And we want to hear it from our mums as well. We want to hear it everywhere we go. We want affirmation. We, we, we long so deeply to be affirmed. And here it is. You want affirmation? The God of the universe speaks this to you. What he thinks matters more than what anyone thinks. What he says about you matters more than what anyone says about you. Here is where security comes from. Here is where comfort comes from. Here is where the big, deep breath, the sigh of, oh, yes, comes from, is when we understand that we're loved and God delights in us because of Jesus. And that's what you've got now. And I tell you what, as, as, as we understand that and live in that and appreciate that, that's going to bring the kind of security that's going to enable you to love others better. It's going to enable you to be more helpful to others and not be so consumed by what you feel like you need because you've got what you need from God. And he's speaking it over you today because you're in Christ. If you've not yet come to put your trust in Jesus, then this is not yet the reality for you, which is why you need to come and consider Jesus.
and put your trust in him. Because in him is deep, deep love and affirmation that you're longing for. And here we have it in Jesus. How good's that? How good's that? How about I pray then? Just leave it there, right? And we're going to sing, so we'll get ready to do that, but how about I pray? Oh, Father God, we thank you so much for this record of the life of the ministry years of your Son. We thank you that we can have confidence in its accuracy and its reliability. We thank you that we see that when Jesus came, it was clear who he was. The forerunner made it clear. The words spoken about him in the moment made it clear. And and, and we wanted to be clear in our lives, crystal clear. We want to know exactly who your son is and hold tight to that all of our days. That's, this, is this, this is the guts of our faith, the trust we have in Jesus and who he is. Please, please Lord, help us cling to, to, to these words that you have about Jesus. And, Lord, to hear that now, by faith in Christ Jesus, these words can be spoken to us. Oh, Lord, would you help us to wake up every day and understand the reality of the way you see us and what you say to us. Oh, Lord, shape us. Enable us by your Holy Spirit to be open to seeing our union with Jesus and what it means. And, Lord, would you, would you take us and use us? Would you grow us and enable us to receive love in such a way that we are usable and, 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 and we can live and submit to you and honour you in our lives in such a way that you get glory. More of the glory that you are so worthy of. We thank you in the name of your son Jesus. And the people said, Amen.